Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. WebDM is taking a week off, so we decided to unlock one of our Patreon podcast episodes for everybody. We do a whole podcast just for our patrons every single week. There are over 180 episodes, and it's a fantastic community over there. So enjoy this one. It's about game structures and why we like them. And if you like this, join us at patreon.com slash webdm. All right, Jim. That's good. You want to you want to have a little cue warm up? Yeah, let's Pat- do a patron. Cue. Yeah, hey guys, pa- let's patron do a cue. Question, question and answer. Question. Time. Yeah, it's question and answer time on WebDM. Uh, okay, this is from uh, Meat Bunny. Meat Bunny. So uh, let's hop right to it. Uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, oh wait, hang on. I guess I should read all of this before. Um, <laughs> So basically, from Meat Bunny, between the history of Rome podcast and some things Jim has mentioned, uh, interested in running my next campaign roughly based on the disintegration of the Western Roman Empire. Like the idea of huge chunks of the frontier, small town in this case, basically being told, uh, see to their own defense. Uh, could be an interesting situation for an adventuring party, especially in a magical world where uh, their town has been protected from both monsters and barbarians up to this point. Okay. Mm-hmm. However... Uh, I do more, uh, I want to do more than just take a Wikipedia timeline and file off the serial numbers. Any recommendations on how I can tie these elements into a fantasy world, especially on a smaller scale? Uh, mostly what I've read is focused on emperor's battles, uh, in the big cities, not so much on what you'd see, uh, happen in your stereotypical village. Mm. Oh, so what does it look like on the small scale? Yeah. I mean, it's, but is it that supposed to be kind of, uh, a little bit of what the Forgotten Realms was supposed to be like originally is there were these big empires that kind of crumbled into smaller kind of city states yeah right yeah. There, that's sort of the the initial premise for forgotten realms i think because there's all these like you said all these realms which have been forgotten um <laughs> but it's like multiple right there's like multiple elven civilizations multiple dwarven multiple human those are the big yeah. big three that i'm aware of but yeah like i like to me D works best when you assume a prior civilization that has fallen right like it yeah. accounts for all the ruins accounts for all the dungeons it accounts for the fragmentation of society the prolifera- proliferation of monsters it gives a place for adventurers to like exist without answering questions like why don't the legitimate authorities handle this thing mm-hmm. right like cuz there are none <laughs> you know yeah. or their ability to project power is extremely limited um, I think that's one of the reasons why the faux medievalism has really stuck around because the more modern you get, the more you have to answer like, where are the cops? Where, where's, <laughs> where's the army? Why isn't someone taking care of this? Why is it just some random people who uh-huh. do this? Uh, which is why I don't really 
like the trend in fantasy of sort of like moving away from the medievalism to to more modern stuff that's that's different the fall of mm-hmm. the western roman empire is easily like in, until i was told that you have to learn greek and latin to study ancient history this was the mm-hmm. this was where i was on track for especially this particular time period um otherwise known as late antiquity so yeah like if you're going to wikipedia most of what you're going to find is the big picture stuff primarily that's because that's really all we know for sure most everything else is is from fragmentary evidence or you know pieced together from from archaeological evidence and and the what scant historical records survive uh so there that's the reason why you're really only seeing that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. fortunately they make you read all that little shit when you're going through your degree or you get more than just that. So what did it look like on the small scale? Like before the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, which took roughly just shy of two centuries, right? So this is not an overnight thing. It, it's, it's a very slow decline where there's, there'll be like a significant drop in the presence of the empire uh, and, the, and it'll level off for a while. And then there'll be another significant drop and people get used to the new normal. And then mm-hmm. over time, you realize like, oh yeah, we're not paying taxes to the same people. And the soldiers who defend us are, are different. They answer to a different authority. And so like translating that into a local level is considering like, who was it that's, that used to rule this place? Like how, what did they do? What, what, what function did they, uh, did they serve? What, what role in society did they? So if you're thinking of the Roman empire, the Roman empire really just exists to extract resources to benefit Rome. Like, you know, (laughs) isn't that, but isn't that just what empires do? (laughs) Well, that is sort of the definition of empire is that you, you expand the boundaries of your imperium, your ability to project power, uh, and, you extract resources for wherever you are projecting power from. So in the mm-hmm. Roman case, there's multiple levels, right? Like if you look at a map of the Roman Empire, it's all one color, but that really glosses over a lot of uh, the intricacies and complexity of it. Some places were directly ruled by someone appointed by the emperor. Other places were told, hey, as long as you don't rebel, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Like, we don't care. Mm-hmm. Pay your taxes. That's fine. And so... Where you live depended a lot on it. When you're thinking about translating this into fantasy, consider, was this a place where the hand of empire was very light? You know, like they're not drawing soldiers from this region. There's, you know, everybody pays their taxes. You might go your entire life and the only representative of the empire you see is the magistrate who comes to collect your taxes and who you might be able to appeal to. So the more you involve the empire in the pre-collapse, of your setting, the more mm-hmm. it's going to be obvious when they're absent. Right. Uh, to get back to what it looked like at the small scale, it meant that local elites became more and more important. Right. You, you'd see local elites, people who are landowners, people who are successful merchants or who have connections with the imperial government, exercising and flexing their control more as opposed to exercising it through the centralized government. Um, which again, we're talking, there's really not a bureaucracy in, in the ancient Roman empire, uh, 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 imperial official is somebody that the emperor's like, go here and do this thing. You know, it's not like say the, the various Chinese empires with their Confucian bureaucracy and sort of like grades and, and tests and things like that. 
It's pretty much just like, does the emperor like you? Then you might get to do this thing, you know, has its own set of problems. So it's like your village might find that the local garrison, the, the, the soldiers there have taken to farming and they've essentially settled and they're no longer like called away to various wars to fight. And there's a degradation in their equipment and their material. Maybe they're no longer paid. That's what happened in the late Roman Empire was like they can't afford to pay their soldiers. So they were just like, take this land, you know, like just live there and farm it. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. when they started inviting large groups of barbarians, quote unquote, into their, uh, you know, into their borders because they were like, we have no one living here. You live here. Provide us soldiers. Provide us money. In return, we'll let you do whatever you want in this part of the empire. And over the course of two centuries, as they kept doing this, they, you know, the Roman emperors looked up and went like, shit, we lost all of Britain, France, Spain, you know, <laughs> like they just, you know, had. So consider yep. who are the local elites? Who is it that uh, wields power in the absence of a central authority? Um, how do they how do they project that power? How do they enforce it? In the late Roman Empire, we're talking bands of private mercenaries, private soldiers that these local elites would hire. And because the only people with significant military experience were around were people from outside the borders, Franks, Goths, Saxons, and the like. Those were the people the local elites brought in to serve as their private military force. And this mm -hmm. grew and grew and grew until non-fortified villas became castles, until the local elites looked up and went like, well, the emperor's really far away and is like a 12-year-old boy so screw this. I'm just going to go to the local Frankish chief who was invited in a generation ago to live in this place. And number one, they don't know how to read and write Latin. So I serve a function for them. Right. Uh, and they serve a function for me, which is they offer protection. And eventually over time, the people that learned to read and write Latin become church officials. Right. That's how they wield power. They become bishops and abbots and all this other kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so reflecting that in your game is about subtle changes to what's going on. And if I was going to, to start this, I'd be like, we're starting it at the moment when people realize the authority is gone and there's someone new in town. And so this transitionary period where people are having to, to, to grapple with, like, I used to owe loyalty and service and, and taxes to this one entity. Now it's another, but they haven't established themselves as a legitimate authority yet. Um, yeah. I, you know, I only recognize the imperial authority or vice versa. That's how you can portray those things. Oh, definitely. Like, I'm just, all I'm hearing is Littlefinger talking about how hmm. chaos is a ladder. And this is the time that, that you can use uh, oh, yeah. to climb and mm -hmm. gain power. And, yeah. and, you know, when you think about like, oh, the, the conflict that can arise from Oh, well, I've been the governor here since, yep. you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what, buddy? Now, um, yeah, you're the governor of nothing. <laughs> you're the governor <laughs> like, of nothing. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> you either declare yourself emperor and try to find enough troops to go march on the imperial capital, which is worthless other than prestige. Yeah. Or you're just like, yeah, I'm the king now. This is my kingdom. And come and take it, which is what happened. You have the, all of these fragmentary. Like, no, I'm the successor to the Roman Empire. No, I am. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you could, that could be a villain. That could be a, a, an ally. That could be someone that could go either way. When you combine this with magic, you know, think of something like, did, did the empire provide a structure for magic? 
Did it provide academies? Did it provide a, a way of like regulating or channeling the, the awesome power of magic? Is that gone? What happens now? <laughs> you know, is yeah. this where people lose access to a bunch of spells and they go from like, you know, wizards and mages and the like go from being a regular feature of daily life because they have a clear path to power through this mm -hmm. imperial government? Or is it just like, nope, we're all going to hole up in this building and conserve our lore for ourselves, you know? Well, oh, de I oh, I can right. definitely see that happening. As soon as the Empire collapses, all the, the mage academies disappear. Because mm -hmm. they're like, nope, no, nope, we're going to get raided. Let's just yeah. go ahead and just consolidate. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But going back to Meat Bunny's question, like they're asking on a smaller scale. So in my yeah. mind, like maybe they don't have a wizard's college. Maybe sure. like what, what if you have a governor who's trying to keep the fact that the empire's falling apart a secret? Yeah. And they're that governor that's like, no, no, no. I get letters from the empire every day. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like they pay a courier to ride out of town at night and come in every morning with quote unquote letters from the empire. Oh, sure. The emperor. Right. And so, you know, that could be a way of, of, mm -hmm. of initial conflict. There's rumors, but yep. no, every morning the governor comes out and he or the, the magistrate comes out and they give their their declaration of the state of the empire today. Yep. And uh, maybe wondering, uh, you know, travelers coming in. Yeah. They're like, no, we, we, we're two towns over. It's it's, yeah, it's a whole different person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's overrun. Like there's no army. They're <laughs> right. not there. They're not there. Um, yeah. That was a very common occurrence uh, where people would claim to have legitimate authority. So um, and the prestige of having legitimate authority extended well beyond what we would think of as the fall. Like we're talking centuries after there's no Roman Empire anymore. People are claiming they're Roman emperors. You know? Yeah. So you could do a similar thing where like. You start out, there's this local warlord, local strongman, who's the real authority here, what's going on, there's a lot of turbulence, chaos, and then as the campaign progresses, this warlord, again, either enemy or ally, starts to gain power, gain influence, maybe that's one of the PCs, maybe the PCs attach themselves to them, and, and grow in power and take advantage of this chaos. The other thing, uh, Buddy's mentioning monsters, is like, if the primary function of the Empire, or one of them, was to keep places safe, then the proliferation of monsters is going to happen. You're going to see them grow bolder. You're going to see them, mm -hmm. um, you know, take over parts of it. Consider how the relationship between monsters and the Empire before worked. Were any monsters used by the Empire, right? Did the, mm -hmm. did the Empire use the traditional evil humanoid races, hobgoblins and orcs, as part of its soldiers? Those hobgoblins over there in that ruined, <laughs> you know, dilapidated fort used to be Imperial soldiers. They used to be. Now they're not. Now they're just bandits, you know, because yeah. they're armed and they used to be fed and paid by a central authority. Now they're not. They're going to go find it themselves. You know, that's mm -hmm. how you get the breakdown of society. Yeah, they're going to get paid. One yeah, they're going to get paid. They've got weapons. They've got, <laughs> you know, they're they're trained for violence. You're just a farmer. You know, <laughs> do you pay tribute <laughs> to the local monsters to keep them out of your yeah. village? Maybe that's an adventure. Well, you 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 just reminded me of is uh, it's sad that it's gone now, but uh, on Netflix the uh, the the Dark Crystal series, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that that kind of setup where once a however long it is, they come to get tribute from the Gelflings, and it's this big pompous affair. Yep, yep. And so uh, you know, using that as some inspiration also, and just like the like, you'd have those hardcore people like, no, the Empire. We have to, you have to keep it going. And it's like, no, maybe we don't. 
Like maybe it was a bad thing. Yeah, maybe you know? that guy coming around is is totally a fake, you know, or yeah. or it's like their father or someone was an official, their parent was, and now they're just like, yep, they were, now I am. That's that's how a lot of hereditary stuff comes about was like, yep, well we used to have to seek appointment from the emperor every time we wanted this thing. And mm-hmm. there's no empire or no emperor anymore. But we're just going to keep this title. We're just going to keep this authority. Like, who's going to take it from us? You know, so that's another source of conflict. Who's the legitimate authority? Where does that legitimacy derive from? What, how do we use that to, to fuel conflict that the PCs can get involved with? Um, Yeah. I love this time period of history. It's fascinating. Um, I love studying the collapse of civilizations because they're, Mm -hmm. while they're similar patterns, they're all very different and unique. That they are. And also they are segues to new civilizations. Certainly. Certainly are. There's continuity there. There's continuity there. Uh, and uh, we certainly have other games that are about those uh, those next civilizations. Let's uh, let's let's talk about a little uh, little Pendragon, Jim. Yeah. I feel like talking about Pendragon. Um, yeah. Because now I can say something about it. Now, yeah. Now you do. So you you guest played on our uh, our weekly Pendragon game. Got to play uh, an NPC who mm-hmm. uh, uh, has a has Sir Clidno, Sir Clidno, pretty prominent place within the setting. Um, f- I, I can't recall if if I've updated you guys on this, but within the last few sessions, everything has gone to shit, and it was pretty shitty before that. Like, yeah, our county lost all of its leadership, like all of it. And so the people who are now running it are those people who, for the most part in their lives, they assumed we're not going to be in positions of leadership. We're third sons, things like that. Nope. Now they're having to now they're having to step up uh, because their older brothers, fathers, et cetera, uh, all died like defending this place. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you're you were playing one of those characters where you're like you were what, like the third son of a Castellan. Yeah. Third son of a Castellan. Just, you know. Just being a pretty boy. Just being uh, a pretty boy, yeah. You thought you were going to live your life with a manor, hanging out, enjoying the privileges mm-hmm. of, of being a feudal lord, all that shit. Yeah, of being privileged. <laughs> and then here I am having to go to uh, to meet <laughs> with the bastard son. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, he, he He's in charge. He's from Salisbury. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just go and solidify my, my power because... Uh, what I loved is he had he himself had a half brother, mm-hmm. a bastard, who was a little older, yeah, and already won a manor mm-hmm. that Clidno thought, oh, that should have been mine by right, but you right. won it with glory, yeah, uh, and it was given to you by the earl, right? So I can't yeah. even do anything about it. Oh it's yeah, Castellan. Yeah. yeah. So there's just always this uh, this rivalry between him and his half brother, and also mm. being in love with the half brother's wife. Yeah. That was just that's just that's just prime drama right there. That's oh, that's yeah. that's ABC daytime television right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so we got to go to this feast, though. Yes. And uh, and have a have a good old time. Let me tell you something, Jim. That was such a fun like. Session. Yeah. Where it, it reminded me of uh, the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. exploration kind of like where you're you're role playing. Yeah. But there's mechanics happening the whole time. Yep. And it's just like these little vignettes. Mm-hmm. Of just like at this point during the thing, you do this. Yep. And then there's revelry and you, the camera cuts, you know, to mm-hmm. the next scene. Like it, it makes it really feel like 
like cinematic and it, yeah. it gives it like that television feel where you just drop in on these little scenes and then the scenes together tell a whole story. Yeah. Yeah. We usually take anywhere between two and four sessions to get through a year. I think once we've done a full year in a session, it's just because we didn't want to do anything. Nothing was going on, you know, but yeah, you're right. Like both in the feast and in the regular gameplay, you're just like zooming in on these little snippets of time. Uh, and, and like what I love about the feast mechanic is it's in terms of like the story that develops out of a pin dragon game that these feasts are very important. It's where you learn about things that are going on in the wider world. It's where you have access to other NPCs that you can trade favors with, get information from, but it's also not completely free form. It's not just a free for all where the DM goes, yeah, you're at a feast. What do you guys want to do? The feast yeah. is structured, right? There's a, yeah. a rhythm and a, and a, a procedure for getting through this thing. And uh, for feast mechanics in Pendragon, it's essentially the DM or the, the, the GM determines how many rounds it is. Typical feast is three to four rounds. And then you have a series of default actions that you can try. You can uh, gossip, uh, gamble, yeah. flirt, right? Drink. <laughs> or sorry, it's, in, it's called indulge because it could be food or drink, right? Or women. Or women, yeah. <laughs> so, which is what my guy was after. Uh, yes. And so if you go into a feast going like, okay, I want to learn this information. I want to butter up this NPC. Like you, you can, you have the structure for that, or you can just draw cards from this large sort of deck of events that you could get involved in. And the cards generally involve some kind of skill check or, uh, attribute check or traits. You know, you test your valor, test your compassion test your uh you know uh what they call temperance <laughs> to see if you mm -hmm. overindulge and it provides these vignettes like you're saying where you can accomplish your goals do a bunch of cool stuff the the default action or the default goal in any pin dragon game is to accumulate as much glory as possible and it it turns something that in other games would just be this free form kind of thing into like nope this is this is this person's turn what are you going to do okay let's resolve this thing do you bring in any other pcs and then you move mm -hmm. on to the next player yeah for having never you know played the game and i don't, didn't even really get a lot of instruction for the mechanics but it mm -hmm. wasn't really necessary other than just you know make your roles you make this role at this time whatever yep. yeah uh but being able to just kind of focus on you know uh accomplishing those goals which i do love i love this was the thing i love now ever since invisible sun having an arc like yeah. actually having a thing that's yeah. on paper like no i'm trying to do this yeah i'm always trying to do this and then there's a thing probably going on in the background like a big story arc yeah but i've always got my stuff i've always yep. got my side scenes and so it's giving even just a nugget of like no no you you want that you want more of this Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. like for me, my guy like wanted to solidify his claim to being the Castellan. Yep. Uh, and also uh, he's, his father was the Marshal of Salisbury. Uh -huh. Um, but I was more concerned about the Castellan thing. Uh, also yeah. I want to find love, but I am, I do have a, I am in, uh, infatuated with my half brother's <laughs> wife who yes. I hate my half brother. Uh, and I also hate my half brother and he's yeah. going to be there too. And you and have so, scores for those, right? Like you had scores yeah. for hate and oh, love. Oh, dude. Right. Yeah. Dude, the hate of the half-brother was a 14. Oof. I 
hated him. Yeah. The love was only a nine. That's why I was like, well, it's greater than 50% not in love. So that's why he's still looking. But like, it's more of a comfort thing. Like Mm -hmm. she's always there. I don't have to worry about it. He just needs to get killed in battle or something. You know, something. Yeah. Oh, and my guy's super religious. So of course it's very hard to do that. And I would think he would beat himself up over that. So it's more about, uh, you know, uh, Lord willing, he'll fall in battle. If yeah, he, it's yeah. God's plan. If it's God's plan. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God will just, um, God will uh, sort it out. Yep. He's keeping her safe until he's killed, and then I get the manor. I get her. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, but I decided to. Uh, I, I only tried one thing on my own, uh, which I think I succeeded at. But the two yeah. cards were both. I decided to choose. Uh, there were always an an angle for finding love, which yeah. was like, hey. This is one of my things. I already had a con. Oh, I had a conversation with my brother. Yeah. My half brother. That was the thing I did on my own. And we kind of buried the hatchet a little bit because he's basically like, dude, I'm not, I don't want your, I don't want to be castling. You're, you're by right. It's all yours. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. Yeah. And it's, it, so I, I don't know. I like that. But then the other two cards are basically like trying to woo women and I just rolled horribly. Oh yeah. I was just not quite laughing stock, but you know, yeah. Uh, Certainly being snickered at. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, and those things, be, you know, with the way we play them, those are moments where we, we you know, they're, they're significantly generic, the cards are, that you can plug in. Who, who mm-hmm. is this NPC you're trying to woo? Who is this person? What's the ramifications yeah. of this? My parallel example is like the very first feast we played with like our very first characters. I like fumbled a role to to impress a potential uh, uh, wife and she ends up going and marrying my rival who mm-hmm. was in that interaction. It was a contest between the two of us uh, mm-hmm. singing, which I had a pretty good, I had like 11 singing, right? Greater than 50% and just botched it. Uh, mm-hmm. And they passed. And so like that kicked off a six year uh, arc where I, you know, my character's pining away for this person, doesn't really care for the, the woman he ended up with because the first one he ended up with died the first year. And so he had a second wife who he just didn't, was like, no, thanks. You clearly don't want to be here. I'm not into you kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. it, it just developed into this, oh, that, that first uh, uh, woman that I had tried to marry, like she's gotten their marriage annulled. Now there's rumors that, She's super into my character. And it's just like all of that comes out of a single die roll at a feast from playing a card. Right. Having a feast in Pendragon is as mechanically significant as combat and as story significant as a lot of combats. And so it's super cool. Well, yeah. And that kind of like bleeds into our conversation today, which is like game structure, like different game structures for just kind of keeping it fresh, you know? Yeah. Um, like like we're talking about like this feast mechanic which we're just going to keep talking about Mm -hmm. just wanted to drop that in there yeah Um, yeah yeah like uh you know i i love that your guy who uh your new guy that you're playing the son the son of my first yeah yeah who's like this just like a like a tree of a man yes apparently and just lecherous is all yeah, Get he's out. known for his lechery. Uh, yeah, he's just, well, he's just young and <laughs> he's ready to hump. He's, he's lusty. He's yeah. thirsty. Uh, uh-huh. 
it's what you do you know you yeah do, you do two three things at that age you, you do sleep, three things you at that fight, age, yeah. and you well you know um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly yeah i i went with uh gorthrin as my second character he's the oldest son of of erwin um he has six brothers and sisters beneath him and two bastards of his own uh which he sired at the tender age of 17 um <laughs> <laughs> and because they're the first of his children, that's going to be a problem, right? Because usually the wow. oldest gets everything, but they're a bastard. Yeah, my, my character went from, uh, my first character went from being British Christian to British pagan. And that, that changes your uh, virtues that you like value, right? Because the mm -hmm. idea is that if you have certain rank in each of your religious virtues, you get a bonus, right? So for Christian knights, that's, extra armor because they are armor of god kind of thing whereas yeah. for pagan knights it's increased healing rate because they're filled with the vigor of the land and and this sort of uh the british pagan philosophy and pendragon is one of like just embracing life right the religious virtues for, for pagans are like lustful generous mm -hmm. honest uh energetic you know so <laughs> when i was looking at him i was like Oh yeah, I'm gonna put my highest virtue in lustiness, lustfulness, because it's a virtue for me, right? It's not a, it's it's I consider this a good thing, and right. it's gonna get me into a lot of trouble. Be be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> be, be fruitful and multiply. And like the book's pretty clear, like lustfulness is not like just a, a strong sex drive. It's also like you just love life and don't believe that you should be inhibited in mm -hmm. your uh, enjoyment of that life as a, and it's yeah. opposed by chastity, which isn't like you never have any kind of sex because you could be married and be chaste, but it is your passion for life is channeled through these set of codes and, uh, yeah. and restrictions, right? Like, oh no, I, I can't today. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing something, you know, I'm, I, this is improper, you know, not the right place, but yes. Yeah. You're, yeah. Your guy doesn't want to be chased. He wants to be chased. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and, caught. He, and he struck out hard in that feast. Man, man, three man. times he struck out hard. Oh my god. Well, you got to second base, I think we decided. <laughs> yes, like, yeah. But yep. you know. Yeah, it was not good. Uh and guess what? There are there's a mechanic for all of that. Yeah. Like when you flirt with someone at a feast, you roll your lustful. If it passes, then then the NPC has to roll their lustful. If the lustful passes, they're super into you. And then you can roll to see if you have a child in the winter phase, uh, if, you'd, mm -hmm. if you'd like. Uh, whereas if they're chase rolls, they might be into you, but they're not going to do anything in that moment. Yeah, they, yeah write some letters. Yeah. <laughs> what these game structures do in the feast is like you're, you're just rolling your skills, you're rolling your virtues, whatever. But it's telling you when to roll them, what they mean, what they pass or fail. And like, it takes these mass this mass of game mechanics and it provides a, a a way for you to use them to generate context and and conflict and mm -hmm. you know this is where the story emerges from the gameplay and when i compare that with say D, &D uh, in any edition almost but particularly modern D, D third edition onward there's a mass of mechanics there's shit tons of mechanics and very little guidance on how to use them Right. And, and well, yeah. what procedures to use. Yeah. I mean, honestly, my perfect game in my head now 
just has normal D and D combat mechanics. It has the mm-hmm. exploration from Lord of the Rings, and it would have like a feast mechanic, or just like a gatherings mechanic, like Pendragon does. Sure. As far yeah. as just like, well, you got three rounds to do this. That represents the whole thing, the whole gathering, the whole feast, the whole wedding. Doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Whole social event, and you have three chances to, you know, do this, mm-hmm. and you just want to get out of there with more glory than you went in, which I yep. I did. I had ten more. Yeah, it's possible to lose glory. You can. I've I've had a couple of feasts where I walked away with negative glory. Uh, That's like I mean, that's no way to be. Yeah, that's no way to be. Um, Although I I will say, Jim, I am upset that I totally missed the much better pun at the very end, which is I figured that a a feast in Salisbury would have wouldn't have salmon; it'd have steak. Um, But but whatever, it still worked. It still Um, worked. Yes, <laughs> it was a good one. I was waiting for that one because it's Salisbury. Um, I know, I know. That's why I didn't pun the entire episode because I was like, I'm going to do the one obvious one. It's just going to be just when they least expect it. Just when they least expect it. It's like, oh, thank God we made it through. Nope. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I think when, like when I think of game structures mm-hmm. and my own sort of experience with RPGs, like my initial reaction to a lot of game structures that I saw was just like, what do I need this shit for? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why am I doing this? And then the more I play them and experience games that don't have structures in place, I find that like, I, there's too much that relies on just like DM fiat, where it's just like, yep, that happens. And then you move on to this next thing. For most players and most GMs, the only real structure they encounter in their RPGs D&D or otherwise is combat. And most yep. games take their combat from D&D. Right? There's an initiative order. You can do some shit in combat. What's the point of combat? To defeat your enemies. And I think why they take that structure and and port it to other games is because it provides answers for what does my character do and how do I as a player accomplish it? You know, which is really all a game structure does. What does my character want to do? How do I as a player accomplish it? Yeah. So when we're when we're looking at game structures other than that, and uh other than say Pendragon mm-hmm. or Lord of the Rings exploration, which we've talked about yeah. ad nauseum. When you're looking at a, a game structure, what like what's the first thing that um do you worry about what the structure is for, or do you worry about how they're how they're gonna do it? I guess you'd have to know what it was for first so you know how to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I answered my own question. No, no, but it's it's a good point though, right? Because the whole point of a game structure is to provide a goal and a, mm-hmm. and a way to get there. And so, like, it it can be helpful to sort of think of some, you know, some some things that surround game structures as a way to like get to the definition. And so, consider like a board game. And this, this example comes from the Alexandrian who has a whole like 16 essays on game structures that are really, really great. But he's talking about board games and he's like, they can be as simple as Candyland or as involved as like Twilight Imperium, which is one of those like mm-hmm. giant box games with all the tokens and cards and shit. Oh, and, oh yeah. It's civilization. <laughs> right. Yeah. It looks, it looks fun as shit. I just don't have the space I, or time. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who has all the expansions. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's great. The board game provides, it answers those questions. What should I do? What do I want to do? Well, the board game has an answer for you. How do I do that? The board game has an answer. The difference between board games and RPGs is that board games have a very rigid 
inflexible like you can't do anything other than this thing yeah right you do this thing uh it's the difference between say arkham horror and call of cthulhu you know even though they're mm -hmm. both very similar trying to evoke the same feel they are very different games and uh, uh conversely if you look at say fifth edition there's a lot of rules there's a lot of mechanics especially on the player's side as it relates to their characters um but some on the gm side and how do i use them how do i make something coherent and meaningful mm -hmm. and and uh engaging out of these things consider stealth in fifth edition what the fuck am i supposed to do with this how do i know yeah. if someone's hidden or not how do i know if they've blocked line of sight how do i know if they have the kind of concealment or obscurement that they need when is passive perception more appropriate than an active per perception role? All of these things potentially factor into this role. And at best, you get like a sidebar of guidance on how to do it. You know? Yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, I completely agree. Like, like the reverse engineer the argument. So like imagine combat was just like your battle skill. Yes. And it was just like, there's something here. Roll your battle skill. Okay, I rolled it. Well, are you in armor? Because now you have advanced, you know, like yeah, that kind of thing. Yep. Like if there was no structure whatsoever, other mm -hmm. than they have a battle skill, and you roll against the others, and you have a passive battle skill, and and you can only do this one thing. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a very confusing game. But no, you uh, you don't have that. You have weapon proficiencies and initiative, and mm -hmm. you have an entire thing set up so that so that when you descend into this, everybody knows what to do and when to do it. Yeah, and, and it's not like comprehensive or exhaustive either. It tells you this is the default goal, defeat my enemies. The default action is attack them. And it's easy to prep. I, I put some enemies on a map. It's easy to run. This is the order everything goes in. This is what they can do in combat. But it doesn't say that's all you can do. You can mm -hmm. attempt anything, right? You can do whatever the hell you want. Uh, and, and some systems have more or less guidance on what the GM should do in that situation. But the structure is there to provide something to branch off from for further uh, interaction with the game system. And I think combat is the best example of this in, an, in most RPGs because, like I said, most RPGs have a combat system that vaguely looks the same as any other. And, right. I, you know, it, and it's a clear structure, right? Mm -hmm. you, can, you can play in a game of, say, traditional, a traditional game, a traditional RPG. And you can have one of those weird sort of like, what are we doing? Are we traveling? Are we talking? You know, what's going on? The energy of the table is lagging. And you tell people, roll initiative. That everybody perks up. We're going to, like, they know what to do now. There's a clear mm -hmm. goal. There's clear ways to get to that goal. And when I read people who either ask us questions or, or other, you know, otherwise online about how, say, dungeon crawling is unsatisfying or it feels like something's missing from the game. Most of the time when I read those things, it's like, oh yeah, there's no structure there. You're just freeforming it. And at that point, you might be asking yourself, why are we using rules at all and not just playing round robin storytelling, you know? Well, because we're playing a game that has rules and you have stats. Yeah. So you, sh so you should use them, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that you see game rules that don't get used because they're not attached to any sort of structure. Encumbrance mm -hmm. would be one of these, whether or not your character needs to eat or not or drink, how often they need to sleep. Like those don't those don't really mean anything. They're not attached mm -hmm. to 
a structure in the game. The rules are present, but when they're called for, what context it is and, and what the purpose of them is, is left entirely up to the DM. Yeah. And if your DM isn't versed in how to create game structures for themselves, then every moment outside of combat might just feel inconsequential in some way or another. Or like what happens to me is I'm, I'm essentially playing a game of does the DM like what I've proposed? Mm -hmm. Right. Do, 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 are they into it? Does it fit with the vibe of the game? And if it does, maybe I get to roll. Maybe I don't. But if this were if this had a structure to it, then I would know this is what mm -hmm. I can do. This is how my character approaches it. I can do something else. Feast mechanic and Pendragon. I can walk away. I can say I seek this one NPC out to talk to them. But if I don't want to do any of that, but I still want to participate, I'm given a menu of options and said, pick one of these. It's going to be good. You will, you will engage with the game. Something meaningful will happen. Okay, so um, for you, Jim, how many, how many game structures is too many? Like, would you have uh, an entire structure for, say, exploration and for mm -hmm. social encounters and for downtime? Uh, uh, you know, just not even exploration, just travel. Like, you're mm -hmm. just traveling on a road. There's nothing to explore. You're on a, you're on a fine road. So that means you're just traveling. Mm -hmm. So, like... Like where, like, how do you, how do you foresee, you know, your perfect, uh, uh, addition? <laughs> uh, my, my perfect game has a game structure for everything the game is supposed to be about. Right. And so D and D claims it's about combat exploration and social, but the only game structure it has is combat, which is why mm -hmm. people say D and D is a game about killing monsters. Now there's been non-combat XP in Dungeons and Dragons since the very beginning, every edition has a way to have non-combat related XP. And yet 40 some odd years after, 50 some odd years after it's, it's been uh, you know, released, people still talk about D&D &D as a combat game where you just fight monsters. And I think that's because it has a clear structure. What do I do? You gotta defeat these monsters. How do I do it? You attack them. Why am I doing it? To get to the next room, to find the mm -hmm. treasure, to do whatever. What's gonna happen when I defeat them? You'll get some XP like boom 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 the player understands where they are there whereas if it's like okay you're going to travel across this wilderness well, all right what does that mean are we just skipping this entirely and saying that we get to our destination without incident are we doing the one encounter on the road kind of thing <laughs> like what do we do and how do we accomplish that is what a game structure answers so yeah what, what you're listed off is like yep all of those I might not use them all the time. There might be times when I say this game structure is not appropriate for this moment, but they're there to fall back on if you need them. Right. And it, for me as a player, it provides a sense of fairness, a sense of predictability and a sense of like, all right, well, in this exact moment, I don't know what I want to do other than I want to do something. Mm -hmm. And it, it gives you that uh, goal. So see what, I, what, yeah, what I am thinking of, uh, depending on like if a DM, let's let's just use the uh, travel and exploration as an example. Uh, yeah, you have a ranger. He's an outlander, of course. So mm -hmm. you know he's super cool at, at finding all the foods and everything. Mm -hmm. So basically, what you what you could have is um, you can have just that one roll. Mm -hmm. Okay, roll survival. You know, and they roll really well. And it's like okay, well, 
the you know the trip takes you uh five days but your ranger because they know what they're doing and they're well versed in this area they mm-hmm. find it there everybody's uh you know there's no detriment to anything but yeah. what if they roll really poorly on that first roll mm-hmm. well see then you descend into this is your well okay now everybody rolls initiative because yeah. everybody now gets to make a roll to see how they contribute to put together the clusterfuck of a travel time that the <laughs> ranger got lost. So now the fighter has to get involved and everybody yeah. has to like start pitching in like, okay, well the wizard is, is on navigation cause they're, you know, a divination mm-hmm. wizard. So they're looking at the stars anyway, and the fighters yeah, yeah. on watch and the rogue is on, you know, scouting to try to find another way. And so now you descend more into, um, you know, kind of like what Lord of the Rings looks like a little bit, but, this yeah. way, like it gives it, get, it like the trip itself becomes an encounter. Yes. And you see how everybody does. And if everybody does, you know, it's, you know, you got four players and three of them do well. OK, y'all managed to make it through. But, you know, your resources are depleted or certain people have levels of exhaustion. Maybe those mm-hmm. that didn't pass their role have a level of exhaustion when they arrive yep. um, or something like that. Like no, just that, yeah. to b- because, you know just something like anything yeah. like yeah anything that that takes it beyond just like a free form experience which can sometimes be enjoyable but and i i know you've said this before in uh in prior i think episodes where you're like you're not playing a game at that point you might be telling a story you might be using your imagination you might be bringing in others and everybody contributes but like am i playing a game I love the sessions of D&D where there's very little die rolling and it's a bunch of us going around and making decisions and reacting to things. But clearly in those moments, we don't need a game structure, right? And yet if a game structure was introduced, say, a procedure for how you convince an NPC to go along with whatever you want them to do, like it doesn't detract from the experience of like we're all sitting around talking. Because the other thing about game structures is players never need to know you're using them. The yeah. player never needs to know that this is what's happening and you can present the world and the situation as if it's just free form. I, I think there's some situations where that works well and other situations where it doesn't. Hex crawling being one of those, like hex crawling is kind of one of those, like, yeah, the DM should just hide this, right? Mm-hmm. They should just present this travel as if they're just traveling. But the DM is using a hex map and a procedure for generating an adventure, things for them to do during that. I want to return to a little bit where you, where you were mentioning about rules. Because I see this sometimes, and it's where I feel like it's in the ether of the TTRPG scene, where it's like rules and game mechanics and the like get in the way. Like you hear a lot about, like, I want a game mechanic that doesn't get in my way, Mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes it's presented as if any game mechanics other than these ultra simple resolution mechanics get in the way. And somehow rules are anti-fun, you know? Well, I want to do this thing, but it makes me roll this thing, and then I fail. And, and then I fail. The thing. Oh God! It's like, well, like, yeah, I, yeah. I that's. <laughs> I want to hit with my sword, and I don't roll well, so I don't hit with my sword. Yeah, yeah. And you don't to me, always. Uh, yeah, you don't always succeed. You don't always succeed, and enough of those things. Enough of yeah. We don't track. We don't track encumbrance because it's not fun. We don't worry about whether or not our horses or mounts are there whenever we leave them off outside the dungeon. We don't worry about this thing or food or whatever. Eventually I'm just going to go like, well, this doesn't feel real to me. I don't feel like I'm living in another place and and making decisions as if it were real. 
it's just a it's like a theme park and what i was going to say about rules is that like if you don't think rules are important to games and play and fun play with a child like when was the last time you know you're listening here when was the last time you interacted with a child while they were playing and played with them there is a shit ton of rules you don't know them right you're gonna break these you're gonna rules be told the time, time. Yeah. but you will be told them and they are serious like the other thing about play is that it is serious business right like i think as adults we have this conception of what play was like because maybe you don't remember what it was like as a child or we don't have children in our lives to sort of remind us of it which is you know understandable having a kid's fucking expensive and money and time uh, <laughs> and you decided to play the game of life i sure did right <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> like it's easy to forget and then you just have this conception of fun and play as this freewheeling no holds barred everything is open experience and rpgs mm -hmm. invite that by having mm -hmm. you know you literally do whatever you want but the fun of a game is that there are rules that you have to abide by and as someone who like if you give me no limits i'm not going to do shit i'm just going to go like wait i have no limits well this is going to take me the rest of my life to figure out what i want to do Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just provide a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, yeah. all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, here's what I could do. You know, mm -hmm. I know not everybody reacts that way, but that's why I find rules very important and, and to take them seriously, even if they're shit. Encumbrance is shit, not because it's encumbrance, but because they make you track by the pound. Right. Yeah. So you can't just have everything because you can't have everything. That's like the wizard gets to choose their spells for the day. Guess what the fighter and the rogue get to do? They get to yeah. choose the equipment that will keep them alive. How many, how many, how many pitch pots can you carry? Yeah. How much gear? Are you going to take that giant crowbar and the shield and mm. the spear and, and the, the treasure you want to take out and of the place. treasure you want to take? Like, like, you know, those become meaningful. Yeah. It, it, those choices now have meaning because yeah. the rules have meaning. Uh, yes. I, but I will say to your point, uh, uh, since moving to my new digs, uh, this has been my first week uh, uh, around the whole family. So now there's mm -hmm. a, a, a nine-year-old child uh, in the picture. <laughs> so do you know what we did the first day? I was, we started arm wrestling. Uh, and when I say arm wrestling, meaning like literally like wrestlers when they grab each other's shoulders uh -huh, like uh -huh. that. Uh, yep. Wrestling. And then uh, I, I taught her how to sweep the leg. Nice. Like. Uh, next, we're going to move on to punching and kicking, and basically, mm -hmm. um, we'll we'll see how long it takes the Karate Kid to be born. But yes, uh, but but even in that, there are specific rules that, like, yep. like when I tried to shift my grip, she's like, "No, we have to keep our hands here." I'm like, mm -hmm. "Okay, this yep. is how you wrestle with your friends. Okay, yep. this is what y'all do. I'm going to yep. teach you how to own them." And I taught her; she knows how to <laughs> like perfectly sweep the leg and also how to dodge that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, remember, watch important. the hips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's where all the tax come from. I do the same when I wrestle with Trogdor. We'll, oh, we, yeah. call it, we have what's called a gentleman's agreement, which is <laughs> no kicking, <Is> the ret <laughs> no face yeah. attacks. And when one of us says stop, we stop. You know, that's our, those are, but other than that, anything's on the table. I've told him, like, if you want to hit me as hard as you can, go for it. Like, he needs mm -hmm. that outlet sometimes. Mm -hmm. And but he also has additional rules where it's like he'll say something like I'm the strongest. And if I don't relinquish whatever it is I'm doing, I'm trying to hold him back. I'm trying to push him. I'm trying to like 
let him run into me. If I don't pretend that he's stronger, he'll get really mad. It's like, that's not the rule. I'm the strongest. Mm-hmm. And so like, I've, I've, I feel like I've, I've grown to appreciate rules during play and during uh, a game, which is to me what makes play, the difference between play and a game is the rules. I find that it's like, it adds something to my experience of RPGs. Mm-hmm. Pendragon has really solidified this because there's a procedure for just about everything. Want to go raiding? Here's how you do it. Want to go woo your wife? Here's how you do it. Your potential wife? Here's how you do it. Want to go lead an army into battle? Here's how you do it. And all of those procedures are geared towards making interesting situations where you have to have meaningful choices and the outcome has consequences. Yeah. And like, we've talked a lot over the last year and and various videos and podcasts about failure, consequences, choice, and the like. If there's not any of that, if it's just, yeah, you can take whatever you want on this adventure and you can take from the, the place where you're adventuring whatever you want. It's like, well, I take everything. And uh, in both cases, there's no meaningful choice there to get us back a bit on track about like game structures themselves. Let's talk about one that is absent, but used to be present. And that is the dungeon crawl exploration procedures. As a quick recap, they're essentially uh, this. Every turn spent in the dungeon equals about 10 minutes. You can move X number of feet during that 10 minutes with the assumption being that you are moving slower than you could possibly move because you are being cautious. You're checking for traps. You're checking for things. You're not just running through the place or walking through it without paying attention. You are quietly moving methodically through this location. Yeah. Anything you want to do takes 10 minutes of time. Want to search this place for secret doors? 10 minutes. Want to disarm this trap? 10 minutes. Uh, And so it, by breaking these things down, you turn the movement between rooms and, and interacting with the room's contents into a game in and of itself. Every, every six turns, you have to spend one turn resting. Every six turns, you mark down one of your torches. Torches only last an hour. That's six turns. Every turn, or every set number of turns, you're rolling for wandering monsters. Why are wandering mm-hmm. monsters there? So that you don't spend an hour trying to pick a lock. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you could. There's nothing stopping you. But how many of these wandering monsters do you want to have to deal with? So everything you decide to do in a dungeon becomes a meaningful choice. It's meaningful whether or not I stop at this place to spend some time there, because if I do, I might run into something that's detrimental to me. My mm-hmm. goal in this place is to get as much treasure as possible, meaning that my goal is not to fight everything in here. I'm going to have to. Right. There's going to be combat. But that's not the point of being in here. Even if it was, knowing where the monsters are, what they're doing, how to best uh, defeat them, are still going to be important. And so having a structure to that makes this part of the game very engaging, very fun. You're, you're not like checking out when it's mm-hmm. not combat time. And what I found when I use this structure in, in other editions of D&D, and there's some finagling on movement rates and whether or not it should be 10 minutes a turn or one minute or whatever is it takes what is sometimes just a random series of of scenes. This room, you walk through some halls, there's this room, and makes like the whole thing come alive. And when you play through a dungeon with exploration procedures, you can see what they mean when they say D&D is about exploring. Because I think without them, exploring becomes this weird, wishy-washy, like, 
it's about environmental hazards or it's about traveling through a wilderness or whatever. But when mm-hmm. you were like, nope, this is how you move through the dungeon. This is how long it takes. This is what happens. And that goes hand in hand if you want with like creating a map of the place then you are literally exploring a location, right? You have to have a certain amount of equipment to make it through this, this location. You have to prepare yourself, anticipate dangers so that you know mm-hmm. what to bring. You're trying to get treasure out of there. And in original D&D, all weight is measured in coins, not actual pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, like, oh, I have this much space in my inventory left. I can bring out 500 coins. Is that going to be copper or platinum, right? Well, that's, that's why you got to sit there and count. How like, long can you count? Right. <laughs> like tensors floating discs exists because in one of the very first game sessions of D&D, the party, two players, Gygax's kids, found a chest of like 6,000 copper pieces. And that only amounts to a handful of XP, but they realized very quickly, like, shit, we can't, this weighs a ton, right? This is a lot of weight. We can't just walk out of here with it man, I wish I had a spell that would carry this treasure out. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why there's these weird spells and the like. But you'll, you'll notice as you play through this, every choice is meaningful. Every choice leads to another decision point. It closes the loop. What do you want to do? I want to do this. Here's how you do it. Okay, you've done that. Now what do you want to do? And you keep repeating through this thing. And yeah. the accumulated repetition builds up a story, mm-hmm. right? This is how they move through this place. These are the dangers they faced. This is how they overcame them. This is what it cost them. Man, it's satisfying. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like you said, using all those things, encumbrance and, and, and whatnot, uh, it also leads to better choice and spells for the spellcaster. Not just mm-hmm. the big blasts and the big defenses. Yeah. Why aren't you using Tensor's Floating Disc? Why aren't you using Enlarge Reduce? Not for combat. But, hey, there's a ledge that's way up there. I'm going to cast Enlarge on you since we can't climb it. Or I'm going to cast Reduce because there's this tiny hole that, and we can see stuff on the other side of that wall. And, like, yep. you know, like all, grease. So you can grease someone up and shove them through, <laughs> through mm-hmm. a pipe or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. like all these spells that are utilitarian in nature. And it's like, why would I ever take that? It's like, well, because sometimes you have to get to places that you can't get to. Yeah. And this is how you do that. Yeah, my, my favorite thing when I look at a spell list, especially uh, to, to go on a brief tangent, is to look at it. If I go, why would I ever pick this to reverse the situation and go, what scenario requires this? Yeah. Right. Like for years, I was like, why would I ever take Nistel's magic aura? And then I was like, I'd take it if I wanted to hide a magic item or wanted to make a magic item appear to be something else or wanted to make someone seem magical who wasn't already magical. Mm-hmm. And like. When you're thinking of, of older Dungeons and Dragons, some of the best spells you can take into a dungeon are things like read languages, read, ma- read uh, magic, because it's like you might come across an inscription you can't otherwise read, but it might hold a clue to what you're doing here. You might have come across like Thieves Cant or something written in chalk on the side of the wall. Well, if you could read that, you might gain a clue about how to, how to navigate this place treasure maps show up on like an obscene frequency (laughs) in treasure tables you gotta have you gotta be able to read them you know you need to know a command word for a magic item you just found gotta have to read magic Mm -hmm. and so like as those things become removed as you just need to spend 10 minutes with a magic item to know what it does or you have an obscene number of languages or like you could just read them after a 10 minute ritual 
those cease to become meaningful choices and they just be, they fade into the background or just color and you're just like blow past them until you get to the next fight which there's a clear procedure for yeah. you know and so I, I find that having these structures and procedures for playing it doesn't limit me it really enhances the game mm -hmm. and makes it into something that feels real it has impact and weight yeah. and you can get done with those sessions where you didn't fight anything and go, man, a lot happened. I feel mm -hmm. awesome. This is great. I love what we did. And it was more than just the DM going like, yeah, hey, roll me a, a perception check. The DC was whatever you needed to pass, you know, like, oh yeah, you met that DC and this is what happens. And it just feels hollow to me. Yeah. I might've had a good time, but when I think about it afterwards, I'm like, well, I have a good time eating bullshit junk food like you know it tastes good i love eating it but afterwards i'm like god that, that was shit i shouldn't have done that mm -hmm. you know whereas like game structures man that's that healthy rpg meal you know it's filling mm -hmm. tastes that good. fiber yeah <laughs> keeps it keeps things moving and that's what you want in an rpg <laughs> it helps maintain the pace yeah. you know yeah. anytime you're sitting around i'm like god what are we supposed to do the session's flagging you know pacing's off like if you've got game procedures in place that will help Mm -hmm. That will help you move past this thing. I was just going to say, like, I, I know that in my, my sci-fi game, like, uh, uh, the arc uh, structure of Cypher uh, mm -hmm. has been great. And we did a couple sessions ago. We had a session that was mostly downtime because it was just like, what are y'all doing? How are y'all furthering your, your arcs? And that's all mm -hmm. everybody did. You know, you had yeah. Audie over here doing her thing with her gangster and completing a thing and getting a new mission. And she's getting Mike's character, Young Vince. Mm -hmm. Uh, to getting a new life. So he's making a deal with the mob and, yeah. you know, just wrangling people into crime. Yep. Uh, and, and, and everyone is, is doing their own thing because they have their own focus. And right yep. now when you're in transit from one place to another, and it's going to take a couple of weeks, you know, yeah, you could hand wave that or what are y'all doing? Yep. Do your arc. It led to a fun session. That's great. Yeah. I, I think that that's, a, that shows the strengths of having some structure in place, you know, I'm one of those GMs and players who's like, I, everything's on the table. I, I, anything could be an adventure. Anything could be interesting. It could be as mundane as shit. You guys ran out of food. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big deal. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but you can't run out of food if you're not tracking it and you can't track it. If you don't know how many times you need to consume food and under what conditions and what benefit or penalty it gives you. And all of that could be present in a DMG. But if it's not like, this needs to happen. And, and like you were saying earlier, like if you removed the combat system, if you removed the procedure for combat, but kept everything else, you kept the weapon proficiencies, you kept the hit points, you kept the AC. What do you do with them? When, when do I attack? What does that look like? Can, can I use this at, mm -hmm. at, on my turn or do I use that someone, some, some other turn? Can I act on somebody else's turn? Like what happens when I get, when my hit points run out? you know all of those things are answered by the combat procedure and without it they just become stats that float in this ether that the rulebook tells you oh your gm will make something up for you you know except i've in my experience a lot of gms don't they're just like roll this thing did you get an arbitrarily high number you passed you yeah. failed uh, because you didn't get that well what happens a good game structure will tell you this is what happens when you pass. This is what happens when you fail. Mm -hmm. And it's designed to produce more adventure. 
more situations to make choices in. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot in mm-hmm. recent months, and especially as I, I look at fifth edition and I go, this could use more structure. Oh, oh, definitely. And, and another, th- another structure, uh, it, it's a, it's zooming in a little bit, but I, I will just point this out. Like when it comes to creating monsters, mm-hmm. one, another reason why I love Cypher is there's a structure to creating monsters. Mm-hmm. I want to make a level five monster. Well, a level five monster, you take that level, multiply it by three. That's how many hit points it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like to do the, uh, another thing of just like it's level five. Well, it also does five damage. Uh, and the bigger the monster, the more damage it does. In uh, that way, whenever you're creating something, it's literally just like, how hard do I want this monster to be? Okay, mm-hmm. now I know exactly how many hit points it has, how much damage it does. You can alter those things as you see fit. You know, oh, it does range damage because it has a blast attack or it's melee yeah. or mm-hmm. it does cold damage because of a breath weapon. It doesn't matter. But yeah. the base structure of the creation of it takes that long. How hard do I want to make this monster? Now I know exactly yeah. everything there is to it. Yeah. Um, and or at and least a good the game things. structure. No, you're right. A good game structure makes it easier on the GM. Mm-hmm. And, and again, when I read about GMs who feel like there's a huge burden placed on them to make these games and, and run these uh, you know, sessions for their players, I, I'm like, man, you know, if there were game structures in place, that would be easy. And the ones that are in 5th edition, interestingly enough, my favorite 5th edition books, Ravnica, Ghost of Saltmarsh, have game structures. What does an adventure look like? I don't know. Roll, let me roll up on some tables. You know, Ravnica, what's the default action? Default action is I advance my position in the faction. How do I do that? You talk to your faction contact and they will give you a thing to do. Right. Uh, default action in the Ghost of Saltmarsh supplementary material is to travel in a certain direction with your ship and you know you roll on these tables to figure out what happens and it's it what i find with that one was really interesting is like in nearly every rpg i've played fantasy rpg there are stats for ships why why do i need to know how fast this thing goes why do i need to know the crew complement of it if there's not a procedure for it because most of the time it's just gonna be hand waved anyway and and I find that by creating a procedure around it, those stats become important. We, we talked a minute. We, talk, we started off the conversation kind of talking about stealth and consider stealth if it had a procedure that it was as intricate and, and meaningful as combat mm-hmm. that provided answers for like, what direction is this guard looking? Can I sneak up behind them? Mm-hmm. Where exactly are my places to hide? What exactly are the conditions under which I'll be detected? What does it mean for them to be aware of my presence, but do not know where I am? <laughs> Currently, that's just all whatever your DM wants it to be. Yeah. And I, I find that an unsatisfying play experience. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I think the GM's shitty, but just because oftentimes it just comes down to one role. Would you clear an entire dungeon with one role? Right. Would you would you represent the months it would take to convince an NPC to change their mind on something with one role? Yeah, maybe. I mean, (laughs) but (laughs) it's it seems to me there should be a little bit more in place. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Um, A reconnoiter phase where you learn about the NPC Mm -hmm. uh, 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 ancillary uh, talking to people. Uh, I mean, that would be part of the reconnoiter phase, but still. And then you uh, obviously would need to. 
placate their ego before asking them. So there's the butter up phase. <laughs> right, right, right. And most of the things you'll see out there for that or for exploration and like, they look suspiciously like combat. Oh, they've got a patient score. You have to reduce it. You mean they have hit points? Like you've got to charm, use a charm maneuver. You mean like attack them? Mm-hmm. And I like, it's fine. Reskin is fine if it works for your game. But like once I know what the reskin is, I'm just going to be like, well, this is just combat and like combat works for combat, but I want this to be different. Yeah. And when I talk about like, I want the feel of the game to be different when I engage in different activities, this yeah. is what I'm talking about. I'm seeing a meme here, Jim. Ooh la la. It sounds like combat with more steps. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the worst ones are where they try to turn travel into combat where it's like, okay, yeah. this is the environment. I statted it up like a monster. Every time you deal damage to it, that represents you traveling through it. And it has these actions you can do against you. It's just like, I, I just would, can we just fight something? I'm like, yeah, I just want to walk. I don't want to kill the ground as I walk over it. Like, <laughs> I want it to feel different. Yeah. And game structures will make it feel different. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, there's all kinds of game structures, right? Like, we've talked about two combat and dungeon crawling, but there's hex crawling through the wilderness. And this is like exploring unknown territory. Mm-hmm. There are, there's like mystery game structures. There's game structures for different kinds of social interaction. Um, oh, yeah. Game like structures. Moral, like morale. Like morale. Talked about that. Yeah. yeah talked about that many mm-hmm. times. Yeah. When, when do you check morale? Why? Under what conditions? What does it mean when you failed that? I think it's possible to like overburden an RPG with game structures. It's possible that the DM is just like, yeah, I don't want to use this one because it's not meaningful. But because most of the game structures are DM, the DM side, like you can modify them, you can change them, you can uh, alter them or create your own custom ones. And because the players don't necessarily need to know it, those obviously combat, they need to know some things, right? They know they've entered combat. They know what it means. You can lessen the burden that it places on you. You can change things as opposed to like altering a bunch of player options. Like, oh, this spell works this way or this feat works this way. Or I'm going to change this thing with the subclass. So players might feel like, no, this is my subclass. You can't do that. Or I made this decision based on it. When it comes to game structures and their interaction with the game mechanics, like you can, you have more freedom as a GM to shape them, to produce a certain kind of game. I would rather have more than less in terms mm-hmm. of game mechanics. And at the very least, if this game is about something, then I want game structures to support that. And, and as a sort of my last point for that, cause I know we're going a little long, but like when I think of vampire, the masquerade, yeah. the first few editions of it, when we played it, we'd sit down to play it. What would it, what would it feel like D and D? essentially at some point, right? The game promises this angsty personal horror type game where you're, you used to be human and now you're grappling with your, uh, humanity, Mm -hmm. your humanity, right? Am I a monster? Can I keep some of my old life? Whatever. But there's nothing to support that in the game. There's a humanity score, but I don't recall it ever being relevant um there you know it's i mean certain powers are keyed off of it but sure yeah there's some (laughs) things you can do but it's not like the driving factor point of the game like the rules and flavor text suggested is and so i think it's not just our group a lot of groups who played vampires basically like it's superheroes with trench coats and and cool shit katanas and desert eagles and Mm -hmm. you know we're badasses and 
It's like, okay, I mean, that could be fun, but I wanted a game where it's like I wake up with a hunger that cannot be satisfied except for the hot blood of another human being. Yeah. And holy shit, what does that mean for me? How could, do I have to keep my old job? Like, how, I can't go out during the day. How do I survive? I can try to keep up my old life, but it's going to increasingly become harder. Or I can talk to any one of these groups who are in a similar situation that have various philosophies and outlooks on it and try to find my place within there. Oh, except they have elaborate hierarchies of power and influence that I'm going to have to navigate around mm -hmm. all while avoiding detection from the, the mundane world. And like without a mechanic that enforces that and that that makes me have to make a meaningful choice about who I feed off of what times and how frequently. I find the game just sort of devolves into superheroes and fangs. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was going to say, it's like <laughs> the Matrix with fangs. Right, it's Matrix with fangs, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, that example of, of early Vampire the Masquerade, I have no idea what 5th edition or VTM looks like. I find is a strong example because when I would sit down to play it, I found that the promise of the game did not match the game experience at all. It took me years to figure out why. It really wasn't until I started thinking about game structures that I was like, oh, yeah, humanity doesn't mean shit. <laughs> it's a random, arbitrary score. It could be something more. There could always be more, Jim. All kinds of stuff. But, yeah, I, I'm at this point, a lot of D&D &D players, a lot of TTRPG players, you're going to have to make up your own mm -hmm. uh, game structures. And what I've found is that by looking at the early years of the hobby, when there were more game structures... You, th I use that for inspiration. I don't know why they got dropped. I don't know why they're no longer present. But I do know that like 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons does not tell you how to make or run a dungeon. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. <laughs> it, it either expects you to know it or like they didn't even realize they needed to tell you to do this. You know? Yeah. Well, Sucks. Gotta, it's called gotta, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you got to tell the story, man. <laughs> What's the story of the dungeon? What's the story of the distance of fucking story here? Yeah. You know, there's some things will happen. This is going to be interesting and fun and, and it's going to be filled with meaningful consequences, or it can be a series of disconnected scenes where you just fight shit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Roll anyway. perception. I got an 18. You see the goblin before he stabs you. Roll initiative. <laughs> Roll initiative. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is obviously could be a, a, a much bigger topic. I, it, it, it sits at the heart of a lot of my, the things about, some RPGs that I don't like versus others. I think part of why I like Pendragon is because it's filled with structures and I can say, I want to do this. GM can flip to a thing in the rule book and go, I got you. Let's do this. Yeah. As opposed to like, I don't know. How should I handle this? Well, you know, anyway, it'll, this will only be increasingly become ranty. The one. Yes. On. Let's give structure to the rant on WebD. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess an anecdote we can, we can close out here. I think. I, so I played two games over the, uh, the Christmas break that two investigation games, right? And one of them was Swords of the Serpentine a gumshoe game about like pulp fantasy kind of stuff. And then the other was Delta Green, the new one. Mm -hmm. And gumshoe is, you know, I, I say that I look for clues in this manner and I will find clues. And it felt very disjointed. Like it felt like I could just propose whatever as long as I rolled well, but I might not even need to roll depending on what point pools were like, it's going to happen. And it felt like just very lacking in substance Yeah, is how I would put it. 
it, it was effortless. And while it was fast paced and action packed, and a lot of cool things happened. I don't really feel like I made any meaningful choices. As opposed to Delta Green, which went pear shaped by the end, and we were we were lucky to get out with our lives. One of the agents died. We had to steal a cop car while two of us bled out and and fl like fled this town where they were doing something. We don't know. We didn't make it that far in the investigation. But in the eight hours we played before that, we're talking to witnesses, going to the tax record offices, looking up property deeds and and histories from the local library. Who were this person's parents? Why in the world did they camp out on this compound? And at every moment, the GM was like, I know what's there. I know how to guide you through it. This is where the meaningful choice is. And the fact that the whole thing could go pear-shaped and we fail at our investigation was incredibly satisfying. And incre it felt like time well spent because of these meaningful choices that we had. Yeah. And it also fit with the fiction of it. Read the Delta Green rulebook. It's like, yeah, you're a veteran after one mission. <laughs> like most yeah. don't make it <laughs> like you're a regular person having to fight the mythos. And like you might be a FBI agent, but you're still just a person and yeah, yeah. you're going to get your ass kicked if you go in guns blazing. Which we had to do because the enemy forced our hand and a bunch of people got shot up, including my character. And then we fumbled a drive roll, which caused our car to flip. <laughs> Man, the times in Cthulhu that happened. It was fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. That is how I see the impact of game structures uh, in play. I think that's the end of my conversation here. Um, got any? Got anything else for us, Pruitt? Before we wrap up? Uh, no, man. I just uh, I love this talk, and uh, definitely we need to have it more. Yeah. Because yes. it's a it's a it's, it's a worthy uh, part of the game that just elevates the whole play. So most people's experience with it is with terrible game structures who don't that don't do what they say they're going to do. And so there's like a stigma against it or that it's going to be restrictive. Shouldn't be. And a mm -hmm. good one isn't. And uh, yeah, we could, we could return to it at a certain point. I think a hex crawl procedure would be good, but um, mm -hmm. not for today's show. And now part two. Hour. And now part two. Welcome to the second hour of the podcast. <laughs> this is uh, your life now. Yeah, uh, but I'm especially curious about this one, y'all's uh, thoughts on it, especially your experiences uh, with game procedures or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. um, definitely curious about that from you guys. So uh, yeah, hit us up yeah. in the comments. Yeah, hit us up in the comments. Let us know how, how you liked it. Would you like? Would you want more of? And uh, we'll come back to it. Oh yeah gonna take us out of here yeah let's 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 go ahead and head out uh everyone we love you out there uh it's a new year it's uh so let's uh let's make it better than the last one <laughs> let's have some better structure to 2021 there we go <laughs> we'll see you next week very good see you next week guys
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.